welcome back to Comic Remix. I'm Ben, HBI2K Creighton. And I'm Alex Wanshura. And this week we read comics. And we did nothing else. No, nothing else. Just comics, all day comics, everyday comics. <laughs> no movies today because nothing was in theaters. Come on, come on, Doctor Strange, I'm waiting on you. You say that like you're disappointed, given the last few movies that we hey, watched. <laughs> Marvel has not let me down yet. <laughs> uh, well, I never saw Thor The Dark World. so I saw that on TV, so I guess I lied. <laughs> and actually, speaking of movies letting us down, uh, you had uh, a good idea for our gentleman's bet about Wonder Woman. Yes. Which was that if... What did we decide? If Wonder Woman outperforms Man of Steel on Rotten Tomatoes, if Wonder Woman does better, then I will watch and review Fanforstick for the podcast. Yep. If Man of Steel is higher on Rotten Tomatoes, then you will have to do that. I have a handicap, though, because I already saw it. I saw that piece of garbage in theaters. <laughs> Yeah, see, that doesn't make me feel worse about this whole thing. <laughs> if if anything, I have the handicap, because if I win, I get away without having to see it at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway. Come on, uh, Wonder Woman, you can do it! <laughs> Wonder Woman, I want there to be another good comic book movie out there. I want there to be a good DC movie out there. So, so really, either way, I win. If I lose, there's a good movie out there. And if I win, then I don't have to watch shitty fan stick. Hey, I want there to be a good female superhero movie out there. And hey, if DC beats Marvel out to it, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Hey, here's here's an idea off the top of the dome. Uh, no matter what happens with the bet on that same episode, we should each we should both of us watch the Roger Corman version and compare and contrast. Okay, is that easily available? I think it's mostly on YouTube, isn't it? Oh, uh, we'll have to look into it. Okay, thanks for tuning in to the pirating cast. <laughs> <laughs> back to uh, back to this week's topic. Uh, I read this week. Dark Knight, a true Batman story, and I also read the latter half of Death in the Family, which deals with the origins of Tim Drake as Robin. And that was connected with uh, Death in the Family, so yeah, what did you yep. think? You you already covered Death in the Family, what did you think of Tim Drake's first run? Uh, you know, this was, I'd already seen a version of this story, which was Tim Drake's origin in Batman the Animated Series, wasn't it? Yeah, after after the the revamp. Yeah, so I only watched that episode the once, and it was years ago at this point. But, but to be fair, that version of Tim Drake is a mishmash of Tim Drake and Jason Todd. Right, right. So in, in this version, it's very intimately connected with the death of, J of Jason Todd. That's pretty much what inspires Tim Drake to hunt up Batman's secret identity and kind of insert himself into his whole situation. Yeah, I gave a general gist of it last episode, but you can kind of go through it a little bit. Yeah, so it's it's a pretty simple story. Uh, Jason Todd... Jason Todd is dead. Uh, and Tim <laughs> Drake... <laughs> See, I'm not used to any Robin other than Dick Grayson, so I get Jason Todd and Tim Drake mixed up sometimes. But now there's <laughs> Damian Wayne. That's that's true, that's true. And I, I love Damian Wayne as a character. I, I've actually only been exposed to him through the animated movies, but... 
Uh, yeah, he's not he's not that that great in those. No, I read. Um, well, Batman was. Uh, well, I read the original Son of Batman uh, comics that introduced him, and then uh, not too terribly long after that, Batman was spending a year dead for tax reasons, and uh, <laughs> there was there was a run for a little while. I think this was uh, this was not too long before they rebooted everything into the new Fifty Two. Yeah, I but, think so. But you're talking about where where Dick Grayson was Batman and Damian was his, was Robin. Yeah, yeah, and that was that was a really good run. Like those two had great chemistry. Because the Damian Wayne uh, that you know is probably kind of at his most. I'm not happy with anything. I'm gonna fold my arms and scowl at everything. Every criminal should die because I'm yeah. an assassin. Yeah. And it was really interesting to see that character after Bruce Wayne, after his father was out of the picture. Like it felt like he wasn't trying as hard to impress anyone. So he was a little more, a little more like a person. Well, and then like, I just realized this just now with, with Bruce Wayne dead. I mean, he's still got Talia, but he's kind of earned the orphan merit badge that all of the (laughs) bat family has. That's true. And, and yeah, Dick Grayson had, had a great way of just kind of not putting up with his shit. But in the most wonderful way, because he didn't he didn't match his grimness with grimness. He just kind of had this knowing smirk the whole time, like, yeah, you think you're hot shit, you think you're special, but you're a kid. <laughs> so yeah, they had this really I was cool... there too, asshole. <laughs> yep. Yeah, but, you know, without really holding that against him, they had this fun, like, big brother, little brother dynamic, which really worked really well for the character, I think, and worked really well for uh, for Dick Grayson, too. Yeah, I've heard I've heard really good things about that run. Is like I I was dragging my feet mostly because I was still like uh, Jason Todd's back and blah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's definitely one of those things where you can approach it with your arms folded, kind of like uh, oh they're shaking up the status quo, but everything's gonna be back to the way it was in a year. So fuck you, DC. But the, but the weird thing is also that I was I was the kind of person who was shaking my head at like all these new Robins. But then when uh, Stephanie Brown died and wasn't counted in the Robin ranks, I was like that's bullshit. She's a Robin. <laughs> Like, she had the, like, technically she only put on the costume for, like, a month in the comics. So, like, mm-hmm. four fucking issues and then she died. But I was still like, fuck you, you killed a major character who was a big deal in the 90s. And then also just went, no, she was never Robin. Fuck you. Yeah. She earned that mantle. <laughs> but uh, anyway, in, in this particular story, uh, Tim Drake has... I wasn't entirely sure of the timeline. I wasn't sure if he was supposed to already have known or if he figured it out after Jason Todd died. But he's been... He's basically a Batman and Robin fanboy. Yeah, Uh, my understanding or my remembering it, I think he just was like... He figured it all out and was like, good for them. And then when Jason Todd died, he realized that Batman was real, real grimdark and like not accepting of any help and then he was like there has to be a robin because he's not cool he's not well without robin like robin is the lighter side of that team and he makes him he grounds him as a person 
Yeah, yeah, he's basically the, uh, <laughs> the stand-in for the writers who very clearly believe this and then had to deal with, oh, but the fans want Robin dead. So in a, in a weird meta way, this feels almost like a defense of Robin. Yeah, I'm I can, not I can sure. see that. Yeah, yeah. which it, it works fine as that. Uh, I'm not sure how well it works as a story in and of itself, because it it messes with comic book logic a little bit. Like we talked about in the last episode, we talked a little bit bit about how the whole secret identity thing falls apart the more you think about it, because a reasonably intelligent person who puts their mind to it should be able to figure out most of these things pretty easily. Yeah, so Riddler, who constantly obsesses about it, should have figured it out fucking years ago. Yeah, because Tim Drake is not really... I I suppose technically he's working off of information that the general public wouldn't necessarily have. He uh, saw a flying Grayson's act as as a little, little kid, and then a couple years later, he was there the day the flying Grayson's, uh, Dick's parents died. And then a couple years later, he sees a... uh, uh, some news footage of Batman and Robin and notices a certain, like, flip that he does or something and goes, oh, that's what the Flying Graysons did. Like, okay, but also, doesn't Robin's costume look a lot like <laughs> Dick Grayson's Flying Grayson's costume? And nobody nobody put that together? Uh, but he's, he saw that, and then, of course, from going from there, it's pretty obvious, like, okay, if Dick Grayson is Robin who is his legal guardian, Bruce Wayne. Hey, there's a guy with a fuck ton of money who could easily be Batman. And <laughs> and then, oh, now there's a new Robin. Right around the same time, Bruce Wayne adopts a new ward. So, yeah. It's, I mean, it, it that all makes perfect sense. What doesn't is, why didn't anybody else notice this and put two and two together? But that gets into issues of comic book logic that it doesn't do to think too hard about. Right. So he goes to Titan's Tower and tries to look up Nightwing, uh, as he's now known, to try to convince him to be Robin again. And Nightwing's kind of like, no, I'm just, I'm not Robin anymore. I would, I want to be there for Bruce, but I am not Robin. And this is where it, it again gets a little hinky because, like, the idea that Batman needs people around him, that he shouldn't just be this brooding loner, I'm all about. Like, Batman... He has a family that he has created for himself, and I think that's an important part of the character. I don't know that it necessarily makes sense, either in or out of universe, that it has to be Robin, specifically. Like, what? Alfred's Batman's family, you know? Uh, Leslie Tompkins is Batman's family. Like, Batman has family and friends to support him, and he needs that. I don't know that he needs somebody in red and green tights to be complete. Yeah, and... and I I pointed it out earlier that Damien earned his orphan badge. It's a family of orphans. It's people who've lost people in their lives who mm-hmm. kind of support each other. And that's actually kind of a beautiful like little family that they put together. It's it's weird that they go out at night and punch people <laughs> to bond, but Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I I think this story has the right idea, but it sort of misses the mark. Right. In, in some weird ways. It also, in the middle of all this, there's uh, a little murder mystery involving the circus that uh, Dick Grayson 
was was that as a kid it's going out of business and it turns out that somebody's been sabotaging it uh, in order to drive the price down uh, because somebody else is trying to buy it. That whole thing was kind of, like, it was kind of convoluted and it didn't really, I mean, not terribly so, but it just didn't hold my interest enough for me to pay close attention to it. Right. Tony Zuko. Yeah, exactly. Like, but it wasn't Tony Zuko. That would have been, it, that would have been okay. But yeah. I, I think Zuko's away forever for killing the Flying Graysons. Yeah, pretty much. And despite the fact that it takes place in this setting and with this these people that have a lot of significance to Dick Grayson, it didn't feel like I mean, ideally when you're dealing with such a such a character heavy uh story, you want the mystery, the superhero stuff to tie in with those with that characterization. And this this didn't really feel like it did. Like there were no parallels or connections to draw between that and what was going on with, you know, the Bat family and Batman needing a Robin and all that stuff. It felt weirdly disconnected from any of that. I think what they were trying to do was with Nightwing going back to the circus, it was Dick basically going back to his first family. Like the family that could have taken him over his being raising him after his parents died. I think that's what they were going for. I don't know how successful it was. Yeah, I like thematically I don't think it really I don't think the stories really inform each other. I mean, from a character perspective, yeah, it does totally make sense. He's feeling introspective and he goes goes back to an important place from his life. But, but they, they thematically to draw that connection a little more. Yeah, they just didn't do much with it other than have a a neat little murder mystery. Mhm. Yeah, so that's uh that's Death in the Family. It's definitely a formative... Uh, oh, I suppose... Also, by the way, foregone conclusion, yeah, Tim Drake does become the new Robin by the end of this this story. That also struck me as a little weird. Like, I, I guess I never really knew that Tim Drake's introduction as Robin came so close after Jason Todd's death. I think it's, and, like... I think in the collection, it feels like it's the next fucking issue, but I think there were several issues in between the introduction and the yeah, yeah. I mean, it is it is just very firmly tied in with it. And as much as Batman pays lip service to, to know, there's no way I can put another child in danger. And and then he goes and does it. Here, like, here I'm going to look it up quickly. Just see, like, which issues and which year the two happened. All right. Yeah, I'd be interested to know. Cause, but, I mean, even even apart from the amount of time that takes place in between, like... Kid sidekicks are one of those relics of a bygone era of comics that is just harder and harder to justify. And coming tied in so closely with the death of Jason Todd, like, it really feels iffy. Like, yeah, Batman, you really shouldn't put another child in danger right now or ever. You really should not do that. Please don't do that. And, you know, I like Tim Drake. I have... You know, seen him in, in enough stuff that I like him as a character, but introducing him in this way at this age, yeah, it's it's rough. It's it's really hard to stop thinking about the fridge logic of the situation. It's it was several months later because the original Death in the Family run was from December eighty eight to January eighty nine, and Tim Drake's first appearance was in August of eighty nine, so it was almost a full year. 
Oh man, even even still, like within a year, that's yeah. It's I don't know, I don't know. And, and to be fair, uh, at the end of this this story, he does put on the Robin costume, but there is a question whether he becomes Robin, leaning heavily that he would. But he yeah. is not officially introduced as Robin for a couple more months. He's Robin again. Like the new Robin is introduced in December of that year, so it was like three or four months in between. Yeah, and he was, and he's still a minor when he does fully become a, an active duty Robin, right? Absolutely, they all are. Yeah, yeah, because because that see that that could have been an interesting vein for some storytelling if if Batman had said, "Look, I'll take you in, and I will I will train you, but I am not actually taking you out on active duty un, until you come of age and are a legal adult." Yeah, once you're and, eighteen, and, then come on, but. Yeah, so you know, if if you want a little after school club where you come over here and I train you how to how to fight against practice dummies for a while, then we can do that or something, you know. Or or have him since he is, you know, in universe at least, he is this great detective for, you know, putting two and two together. Like if he had made that part of his training, like you can hang out in the bat cave and get on the bat computer with me and we'll solve some mysteries together. But when it comes to actually going out there and throwing batarangs at people, that's all me like that. That could have been an interesting way to go about it. But the way they did it where he is just a straight up Robin replacement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that is so iffy. And I, I feel like they paid lip service to what an iffy proposition that is without actually treating it with the gravity that maybe it needed. Mm -hmm. But that's, so that's Death in the Family. What did you read this week? I read the first volume of Saga, and then I also realized, I I didn't read it. I, I know it well enough because I keep up with this that I can actually kind of talk about it, and I'll thumb through it. I have all the volumes. But uh, I'm talking about volume one, and... As I started reading this, I realized that I need to do what you do and pick one-shot comics instead of fucking series, because I am now reciting, what, three series for this uh, this <laughs> podcast? Because I'm in the middle of Hawkeye, I'm in the middle of Miss Marvel, and now I'm going to start fucking Saga. So, yeah, I need to start doing shorter fucking stories. <laughs> yeah, probably not a bad idea. But anyway, I will still do Saga. I may or may... I'll probably pick a one-shot for next week, but I will probably revisit all of them every now and then and get caught up with those series that I've started eventually. But anyway, Saga is kind of a... I always describe it to people who have never heard of it as Star Wars meets Romeo and Juliet. It is uh, a story of two people in a very sci-fi, like, futuristic world of aliens uh, that fall in love on two sides of a battle, of a war. There are, it's actually a war between a planet and the, the population of a planet and the population of a moon of that planet. Uh, what are the, it's landfall is the is the I want to say the planet and the wreath is that moon and basically the two different alien races are the 
landfall aliens have wings, the moon aliens have horns, and at some point these two characters, the main characters, Marco and Alana, are introduced to each other as enemies. They're enemies on two different sides of the war, but she's a fuck-up of a soldier, and she is eventually, like, when she is... Total, like given a direct order to kill civilians because the the two races fucking hate each other she refuses and she's like oh instead of like admitting that you're a terrible soldier we're just gonna shuffle you off to guard duty at a, a prison camp and so she meets marco who is captured on his first battle because he realizes the horrors of war and goes i'm a pacifist now i give up because this is bullshit and they bond over a, uh, like, sh- Alana's reading a weird romance novel that ha- turns out has, like, a weird, uh, like, a, a very hidden but, like, there if you look for it message of peace between all races. And, like, both governments, if they saw that, would say, oh, that's fucking heresy and or uh, treason. So like it's it's a message that's out that's out there but not not well thought of. Anyway, this whole war is going on. The narration of the book is actually done through their child who is born in the very first issue of the book. It kind of flashes back to all that backstory that I dropped. Um, but anyway, the entire plot is them running away because they're they're running she helped him out of the prison camp and they ran away together and got married and had a kid and they are running away from bounty hunters who are hired from both sides to track down the the uh AWOL soldiers and either kill them or bring them back and the along with the parents Alana and Marco and their child Hazel there is the two main characters that we follow through this are two of the bounty hunters. One of them is Prince Robot the Fourth, who is a robot with a TV. Sc- they come from a race of robots that have TV screens for heads, so they're interesting. And then the Will is the other guy. He is kind of a monster, but he he's one of those like he's kind of. A monster in the same way like Han Solo is introduced as monster when he kills Greedo is like he's not a guy to be fucked with but he has a code both of these people are hired to track them down and it's the various adventures of like I found out that the theme that Brian K. Vaughn tried to put in there is basically doing a sci-fi adventure around the idea of parenthood because I he started the series when his second daughter was born. So he talked about like the trials and tribulations of parenthood through the writing of this book. And then he also was doing like a subtextual commentary on how starting a new series or a comic and putting it out there, an ongoing series is like having a baby and going like, I hope the world treats that well. And so it's very meta, but it's very well done and it's tightly woven. Uh, Brian K. Vaughn's really good at world building. 
if you've ever read, read uh, Why the Last Man, that's another really good one that he's done. I need to read Ex Machina. Why the Last Man, have you heard of that, at least? Oh, yeah, yeah, I've got all of Why the Last, the Last Man. I read the first volume of Ex Machina, and I liked the first volume a, a whole lot. That was all the library had at the time, but that is one that I would definitely be interested in going yeah, back to. Yeah, I, I need to get into Ex Machina. Ex Machina, if I remember right, uh, the setting is basically aliens have made contact on earth but only so many people are exposed to it and basically the only super quote unquote superhero in this universe is the president of the united states is that what uh i want to say he was the mayor of new york oh yeah yeah that's right he is the mayor or maybe he's governor of new york but yeah he he made contact with some of the alien technology and it fused with his uh his uh nervous system yeah gave him the ability to to control machines and so it's and the, it's kind of like uh what if iron man ran new york yeah and he he had a very short career as a superhero which ended for incredible's reasons you know, collateral damage, an amateur going out there and fighting crime, even with a mild superpower, maybe not the best idea. But right as he was realizing, yeah, this isn't the greatest idea. I'm gonna, I'm gonna retire. He decided to to spin that fame that he had gained doing that into a political a, career. A political career again, not thinking that he would win, just. The way a lot of independents do it, like, well, I can use this platform to bring up issues that I'm, that are important to me and get them to be talking points and maybe push the candidates, the candidate that's closest to my position farther to my position so that they can try and, you know, take the votes that I would otherwise get. Mm -hmm. So very realistic, like not thinking that he would win. And then right then 9-11 happened and he saved a bunch of people's lives and wound up winning the election. Oh. Yeah, so very, very uh, cool concept. Uh, and yeah, I'd be, I'd be very interested to read more of that. So that might be uh, something for you and I to both read for a future episode. Yeah, and he also wrote uh, a, a fan favorite of his is uh, Marvel's Exiles, which is basically the children of a bunch of, uh, like, C-list Marvel villains decide, hey, fuck our parents, they're terrible people. We're going to go be our own people. Right, right. Is that the one with the dinosaur? Yep. Yep. Okay. They, they steal the a bunch of their parents' stuff, and one of them steals a pet dinosaur. Basically like a pet velociraptor. <laughs> so, yeah, he's he's really good at, like, these weird things. I also really like uh, his one-shot Pride of Baghdad is really good, which is just a short graphic novel about from the point of view of the lions who broke out of the uh, Baghdad Zoo when we initially launched our attack on Baghdad. So yeah, it's, it, he basically turns that idea into a Lion King allegory, kind of, but like it's it's real sad because if you know what happened to those lions, it's not fun. Right. Because they were wandering around the streets of Baghdad and, Amer and eventually American soldiers came in and went, holy shit, lions, bang, 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 bang. And then, like, they realized, oh, they're just escaped zoo lions. They were probably just starving. But yeah, he's he's really good at, like, world building. Uh, this ha is all structured around this war, like I said. There's a lot of kooky and interesting characters. They run into... Uh, 
Marco's parents who are at first like hey this is basically everybody runs into him and goes like how did this happen why and a lot of people are in incredulous as to like the parentage of their kid because they're under the impression that this war that has been going on for fucking 10 20 30 years probably several lifetimes that these two races can even like produce children is like a a foreign alien concept to them but they're proof that it it's happened and the because that gets uh, that gets spread around the governments are like we don't want that to be public knowledge because so, that would be evidence of like hey maybe we should like forget our our beef with each other and kind of just make peace because we're both people aren't we but uh yeah it's 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 an interesting ta- take on that concept there's also the will one of the guys who i said was after them there's a side story where he saves a slave girl at a sex uh, basically like a a prostitution planet and he saves like a six-year-old girl from that prostitution planet just because he was there to blow off some steam after his girlfriend dies and then he's like this is fucking shit and he kills the person who was in charge of that and then like steals her away and then deals with the planet going like hey you have to purchase that it's really weird world building but it really works and it's a lot of fun and sometimes it's not so much fun because it gets real dark there there's a lot of like ruminating on the horrors of war there's ruminating on like relationship difficulties later down the line like the extent of love it gets pretty heady because brian k vaughn is no slouch when it comes to smart ideas but yeah it's it's a lot of uh fun i mean i don't want to get it's another one that's a fairly new comic too so i want people to read it for themselves and tell me what they think Mm -hmm. so i don't want to just go like beat for beat this is what happens but yeah it's it it's basically they're on the run throughout the series they and a bunch of stuff happens adventures happen along the way and you the most interesting thing to me is every volume is a contained story arc so every next volume has a little bit of a time jump and you see Hazel slowly grow up. So, like, she's an infant in the first one. She's starting to walk and talk in Volume 2. I'm up to Volume 4. I think I'm up to Volume 6, and she's in grade school. So she's... I I think it's roughly, like, she ages about a year every uh, story arc. So, yeah, it's it's cool stuff that he's kind of cramming all into one thing. Yeah, I I really would recommend it. Very cool. Well, I also read Dark Knight, A True Batman Story this week. Uh, how much have you heard about that? Only what you've told me. Okay, so this is, this is a pretty different one. It is semi-autobiographical. It's by Paul Dini, uh, who, of course, is one of the... Uh, was one of the writers on the 90s Batman the Animated Series, uh, has written a bunch of comics... Uh, mostly Batman, but some other stuff since then. Uh, a bunch of the Batman video games. Is uh, considered one of the best modern Batman writers, or just Batman writers, period. And it uh, covers a point in his life. It it goes into a little bit of background uh, on his childhood, but it's uh, 
it talks about a point in his life when he was working on uh, Batman Mask of the Phantasm when he got mugged by these two guys and beaten very, very badly and just kind of how that affected him and how he recovered from it. And so it's it's called a true Batman story, but the emphasis there is on true since this actually happened and less on Batman since the Batman part is just a lens through which to view this time in his life. It's very, very slice of life. Okay. And so it's... It's barely got a narrative, really. It starts off with him, with Paul Dini, like, as if he were, like, delivering a talk or an address, I guess, to a room full of people. It's like him standing in a in a little conference room with a projector, but you're not sure, like, his, you're not sure who he's talking to. His audience is off-panel the entire time. And okay. he'll hold up sketches or, or put uh, pictures up on the projection to illustrate his point, and then it'll go from there into, like, flashbacks of his childhood or illustrations of the characters that he's talking about. It's very abstract. Uh, he talks a little about his about his childhood and what it was like, you know, growing up being nerdy. And this was the, the most boring part of the whole thing to me because it's like, yeah, we know this story. Most of us have lived it. And the ones who haven't like, Oh, I was a kid and I, I wasn't popular in school and I liked nerdy things and nobody liked me. And my parents were mostly supportive, but not really. They wanted, wanted me to get into, you know, sports or something that would get me a real job. And, and then I got a real job. And look at that, Dad. What what kind of job will reading comic books get you? Well, this kind of job. It's like, yeah, okay. we Let's, let's skip ahead to the part that hasn't happened to all of us, which is <laughs> when you work on a seminal comic book animated series or when you get an Emmy for your work on, on that stuff or when you get the living shit kicked out of you by a couple of guys in an alley. Like... These these are the things that that we're really here to read, I suppose. But but before that, he talks. Uh, he gets a little into his love life at the time, and this was the most interesting part of the whole thing to me because it was very, it was very like almost painfully honest. He was uh, dating a woman named Vivian. I'm sure that names have been changed to protect the innocent. She's drawn at least as a redhead that looks. A heck of a lot like Barbara Gordon if she had, if she was much, much bustier than Barbara Gordon is usually portrayed. Uh, which, which might even be accurate because this is an actress in Hollywood. And they have, they have a very uh, fraught relationship because Paul Dini clearly wants an actual relationship with this woman. And she just as clearly uh, believes that Paul Dini is an in with Steven Spielberg. Because Spielberg was working on Animaniacs and Tiny Toons and stuff. This was during the 90s renaissance of Warner Brothers televised cartoons, uh, which Dini was very deeply involved in. Right. Uh, and so Dini kind of plays up his connection to Spielberg initially as they're dating. Like, oh yeah, Steve, he's a great guy. You know, he's, I mean, he's real busy. I never know when I'm going to see him. But, and then as their relationship goes on... Uh, this woman kind of realizes, yeah, this guy's probably met Steven Spielberg a couple of times, maybe even worked with him when he was still on Tiny Toons, but he's since moved on to this Batman thing, and that is not 
this is not the deep Hollywood connection that I was hoping for when I started dating this guy. And meanwhile, Paul Dini is realizing, yeah, this is not a, this is not an actual relationship. We're, we're using each other, you know, and this makes them both sound pretty, pretty skeezy as people. And maybe they are a little bit, although more than anything else, it just came across kind of sad because here's this guy who, who really does want a relationship and wants affection. And he is looking in the exact wrong place for it. But Dini, as Dini now writing this and looking back on this time in his life, is, if anything, almost too harsh on himself. Because he says, you know, this woman, say what you will about her, she was perfectly honest with me. It's not like she ever pretended that this was anything other than what it was. I was the one who had delusions about that. And he, yeah, he seems very, very harsh on his past self. And it's like, look, man, you gotta... You gotta forgive yourself at some point. Like, yeah, lots of us are young and stupid and drunk with early success and don't look closely enough at a good thing or allow wishful thinking to get in the way. Like, it's okay. So, I don't know. It, uh... Yeah, I I just kind of wanted to tell the guy that it's okay to make mistakes. You don't have to keep beating yourself up over it. And then he he gets jumped by these two guys. There's a lot of kind of odd racial subtext to a lot of what goes on here. Uh, as he's describing his internal monologue as he's doing the, as he's uh, walking along, he'd just gotten just gotten out of a bad date where it was kind of a she kind of gave him the sideways just friends talk. Right. It was one of those he thought he was going for a date. And she thought, or at least pretended to think, that she was going for dinner with her good friend. And, yeah. (laughs) And he didn't, she didn't quite, she didn't quite have the balls to say, hey, I think you think this is something that it isn't, and I think we should talk about it. And he didn't quite have the balls to say, hey, I would like to know where this relationship is going, or what it even is. And so they both kind of talk around it, and it's a very passive-aggressive conversation. Right. So he winds up kind of leaving in a huff and he's walking home to clear his head. And then these, uh, he sees these two black guys coming towards him and he thinks to himself, Hey man, don't, don't make assumptions just because they're black. That's not cool. That's not all right. Well, okay, sure. But maybe you should make assumptions about the fact that this is a bad neighborhood and it's very dark and no one can hear you scream and two guys are coming at you. It doesn't matter what their race is, dude. <laughs> this this could be two white guys. This could be two Filipino guys. The they're they're coming towards you like they mean business, and it turns out they mean business. They beat the living shit out of him. They take his wallet, but this seems like an afterthought. Really, they. It seems like they see someone who is, uh, who does not fit their definition of masculinity. He is overweight. He is not strong. They call him a faggot. He is dressed in, I'm sure, much higher class clothing than they are. He looks like the sort of person that has money, whereas they very much don't. So it seems, uh, seems to be more of a, as much of a class thing as anything else. Okay. But... But yeah, so he he just kind of goes limp, just waits for it to be over. He doesn't doesn't call for help. He figures like these two guys are making a lot of noise already. 
he sort of figures, look, if if anybody were going to help me, they'd already be helping me. I'm just going to curl up into a ball and wait for this to be over. And eventually it is. He limps home, calls his quote-unquote girlfriend who gives him no sympathy, then calls Arlene Sorkin, the voice of Harley Quinn, who offers to go over and uh, drive him to the hospital, and he declines. He gets into a hot bath, gets very, very drunk, wakes up the next morning. Arlene Sorkin comes over to check on him and finally realizes, yeah, this is... I need to go to a hospital. This is not something that's going to get better on its own. And he does, and yeah, it turns out they broke, I forget the name of the bone, but they, they literally broke his face. His skull is like caving in on itself. They have to bandage up his whole head and strap this like plastic handle, looks like a kettle or a teacup handle, to the side of his head, which will keep him from rolling over and putting weight on the broken part of his face in his sleep, like... He should not have been able to get home under his own power. He certainly should not have spent the night drinking and then passing out. I don't know. I am I feel like I'm telling this story all out of order, but that's kind of because he tells it all out of order. It's not a very narratively driven story. It's more of an, an emotion, a time in his life. He, you know, eventually heals up. He kind of, he's ostensibly still working on Mask of the Phantasm, but he's not going into the office a whole lot. He's supposedly working from home, but really playing a whole lot of Super Nintendo <laughs> and becoming a hermit. He imagines Batman villains, like, talking to him and taunting him, the Joker especially. He imagines Batman himself trying to, like, talk him up, like, look, man, that sucks that this happened to you, but you need to learn from it. You can, you know, you can go to the gym, drop some weight, put on some muscle. You can start, you know, paying more attention to your surroundings and, you know, watching out for danger. Like, this this is a terrible thing, but you don't have to be a victim. And <laughs> there's a very nice scene where he's having, like, this imaginary conversation with Batman. And Batman says all this. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I could do all that. I'm going to go buy a gun. <laughs> <laughs> And so then there's another another pretty good scene where Batman's just taking the piss out of him. He's, you know, buying, looking at these guns in the gun shop and the guy's, you know, giving him the cell like, oh, do you want this one or that one? And Batman says, well, obviously you want the Walther PPK, <laughs> right? I mean, obviously, because that's what James Bond uses. And this is just a big, dumb power fantasy. So go ahead, pretend to be James Bond. See if it does you any good. <laughs> Shut the fuck up, Batman. You weren't there. You didn't help me. You should have helped me. You know, very much playing the victim. And then the next scene, he's at the shooting range and he's missed every shot. He's like, oh, oh man, this is a really shitty power fantasy. And it doesn't really have much of an end because unfortunately it's the sort of story that if you want to tell it the way it really happened, there is no end. There's no big revelation. There's no turning point where now it's going to be all better. It just, you know, you have your bad days and you have your good days and you move on. And that's kind of what he did. I mean, it does end on a hopeful note. Yeah, I don't know. It's, I, I, I feel like I'm not doing it justice talking about it this way. I would definitely recommend it as a read. Just know what you're getting in for. It's, yeah, it's not really even a story. But it was, it's a very interesting look into the interior life of somebody. 
I was having a, a really good conversation with a close friend who was going through a rough time not too long ago where uh, he was talking about his work. He does creative work uh, like a lot of my friends do. He's feeling kind of dissatisfied, which is looking at him from the outside. You would think that everything's going great and he's on top of the world. And he was comparing himself to some of his peers who he was very much viewing from the outside and thinking, man, I wish it could be like this person. You know, I bet they feel really good about their body of work. I bet, you know, they're doing great and I feel like I'm stagnating and I'm doing all this. And I, I am going to give him a copy of this book because you've got to be real careful about judging anybody from the outside. From the outside at this point of his, in his life, it looks like Paul Dini is the man at the top of his game. He's got a couple of really beautiful women on his arm. He, he wins an Emmy. He's one of the best writers and most important writers and most influential writers in this huge, genre-breaking, incredibly successful TV show. But here he is... He does not have the relationship that he wants to have. He feels inadequate because his Emmy, they split the Emmys and the award that he won was not part of the televised Emmy presentation. Right. Uh, he's, he's only in TV and not in movies. And in Hollywood, if you're not in movies, then fuck you. You're nothing. Yeah, TV's the redheaded stepchild. Not so anymore. Yeah, yeah. Nowadays, boy, what a switch. Other than superhero movies, which are... Uh, a huge industry like movies are kind of on the way out and prestige television is is the big thing now yeah but but yeah certainly at the time working in TV, on television and working in animation just doesn't have the cachet except among a select group of nerds who know who paul dini is and make podcasts about it right uh, that's still kind of true today is that animation kind of for, for a lot a large part of the population is the redheaded stepchild of tv now yeah yeah i mean not not quite as much as it was right if only because of the rise of the internet and things have become so fractured that there is no mainstream anymore you right. know but yeah so i i found it a really interesting look and a really honest look at his interior life and i think it's very valuable for that if if for no other reason than as a reminder that you can look at people and compare yourself to them and always find yourself coming up wanting, mm -hmm. but everybody has problems. And sometimes they're as visible as, oh shit, I had this traumatic experience and some people inflicted very physical, very painful trauma on, on my body. And sometimes it's all these things that are happening internally that you would never know. And, you know, just deal with your own life, you right. know, and don't, uh, and don't, don't let yourself get too bothered by comparisons with others. That's the lesson I took away from it, uh, as much because of things that are going on in my own life as for any other reason. But it's one of those stories that doesn't, doesn't beat you over the head with that moral because it is such an honest look at a significant thing that happened to it to him i think that it's one of those stories that anybody who reads it can take their own lessons away from and i think it's valuable for that right yeah I, so that's what i read I, I think i know a couple of people who could possibly take something out of that like there's a lot of people who could take just that message is really important to realize 
is like yeah. just because you're shitty like you're down on yourself doesn't mean everybody you look up to or think is better off than you is at the point that you think they are mentally at least yeah yeah absolutely especially when it comes to creative people right <laughs> yeah creative people get really like and i'm partially creative and i get this way too is like i i feel inadequate we all feel inadequate about our shit and yeah. like we get really petty it yeah like... there's a somebody showed me a, a venn diagram once uh with a circle that that reads uh insufferable ego or something like that and then another circle that reads crippling self-doubt and then where they overlap is creativity or something right. like that and, <laughs> it's so true and and the same thing is like though I, I forget I, I think it's a famous quote from somebody but it's like don't it, it's basically like it's much more pithy and like an interesting quote but it's basically like don't worry about people thinking about you because they think about you a whole lot less than you think about them <laughs> yeah that's fair because the yeah you worrying about it you're thinking about them a whole lot more than they think about you <laughs> yeah so i think that's a worthwhile read for a lot of people yeah absolutely all right did you have anything else uh, uh today not really um i want i really want to uh i kind of want to get into the the twitter not, not specifics but the twitter drama that there was about like a lot of people were freaking out about the the announced casting of uh spider-man's uh, the spider-man homecoming has announced who its mj is right uh zendaya is the name yeah right i i was not familiar with uh i think she's this she's she's a, a because Disney owns Marvel, she's a former Disney Channel uh, act, ah. actor. But yeah, a lot of people freaking out that MJ's black. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I really don't see any big difference. I, I I you and I were talking about this before we started recording. Like th as I was walking home, we were texting each other about it, and I I almost said this, but I didn't. Uh, Everybody kind of had the same reaction about uh, the Flash's uh, I Iris because mm. they used the Iris from uh, they used as their origin or their version of Iris is the New Fifty Two Iris, and the problem with that Iris is that New Fifty Two was DC's basic like one of the things that they did with New Fifty Two for dc the entire universe was like everybody says we're not diverse enough too many white males let's let's throw in some diversity well we're doing a big uh, universe shakeup with this flashpoint so new 52 we're just going to make characters who have been established as these characters we're just going to go you're asian now you're black and that's diverse right i don't think that's the good way to do that I think Marvel is doing a much better job of that where like new characters are coming up and going, I'm a, I'm a superhero too. Kamala Khan is a great example of that, but like DC did it all wrong. And once I found out that they were doing the new 52 version of Iris, I was like, she's badly written on the show, but that's not her fault. And I don't think it's them not being able to write a black woman. It's just, a shitty character like they don't understand the appeal of iris as a character so i that 
that's what I got, like, my comparison to, like, everybody freaking out over MJ being black. Not a big deal. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that there's, uh, I don't know that there's much to say about it. I'm not familiar with, with the actress as an actress. Yeah. I hope that she is good at playing the character. Yeah. The, and, yeah, everybody who's freaking out is, like, basically, because she's black, she can't be a redhead. That's not the defining feature of of MJ. Yes, she's been a redhead for going on, what, 60 years almost. But that... Yeah, that, but they, they put red hair on Kirsten Dunst and she was only okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she had one good movie. I think she, she was okay as the character in one. Some people found her insufferable in one, but I think that was the only one where they actually gave her a character to work with. Yeah. And then, and I mean, and then two and, and three, fair, she was the like, "What are you doing, Peter?" Yeah, and and to be fair, MJ is a really hard character to do well because she is a she's a difficult person to have a relationship with, and. You know, like it or not, that is her role. She is the love interest. Yeah, and the thing is, like a lot of a lot of people pin the redhead or white redhead as like her character. There's there's a lot of stuff in her character. Not none of it's super deep. I wouldn't say that she's the deepest character ever, but she's a supermodel. She's an actress. She has crippling self doubt because she's a creative type, as we covered earlier. Um, and yeah, she has a difficult home life. Yeah, she has. Uh, she's dealing with like the aftermath of being in an abusive like home, and she yeah she has a lot of shit. And also, I think that she gets like little snippets. They're not major things, but they do have major consequences in Spider-Man's life. They were married for twenty fucking years. Um, yeah. They uh, also one of the big things in the 90s was that uh spider-man kept the venom style black suit for a long time after secret wars but once venom came into their apartment and kind of threatened her she was like peter i don't want you to want to see you in that fucking suit it gives me the fucking creeps now Mm -hmm. and that's why he went back to the classic suit is like there's little things where it's it's very important for ster- character development that she was involved in. It's like everybody loved the black suit, but because of that character moment where she, it was it was real creepy because it was borderline like house invasion rape scene. But yeah, she was like, no, no more fucking black suit. And yeah, I, I mean, you can say what you will about like using the love interest in that way, but it's more than just pretty redhead. Yeah, yeah, like she's she is an an incredibly difficult character to be married to, to try to have a functional relationship with, and I I think that's realistic and honest, but it's also hard to portray that without well keeping her sympathetic, right? So I I hope that this is a version of that character that can that can walk that line. I hope that this is the right actress to do that, and I think that finding the right actress to do that and the right writers to do that 
uh, is a way more important concern than the actress's race or hair color. Exactly. Because, I mean, like, I, I mentioned Iris, but Iris in the comic, I believe... Eh, I, I was going to say she's a blonde, but she's not. So that that would have been com- comparable, but it's not. Okay, well, I... I feel like we're kind of uh, circling, preaching. Yep, yep, we're we're preaching to uh, a mutual choir here. So we'll let that one go for now. I agree with you, sir. I concur. <laughs> I concur with your agreement. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So yeah, instead of this little mini circle jerk, let's cut it. <laughs> All right. So next week, I'm going to try to find something that is more just a single issue or single one shot. Uh, I might, since you're going to do Brubaker, I might do just, it's another series, but it's, it's self-contained stories. So I think I can justify it. I'm going to probably do either, uh, shit. I want to either do criminal or, it's not notorious. It's something else. But he does a lot of crime stuff and villain stuff. And you are going to read Man Man Who Laughs, right? Right. So, yeah. Ed Brubaker is one of my favorite writers. I have a lot of his stuff. Uh, I think I will probably do the first issue of Criminal. I'll, I'll tell you what. Since it is another series, unfortunately. <laughs> but since these conversations always always seem to go better when we watch or or read the same thing... You want to go through uh, through Rex Machina together? Sure. Uh, you want to do volume one for next time? I don't own it. <laughs> I need to get, like, I probably should. I'll do it on Comixology, so I'm not, like, committed to paperbacks. But I will eventually buy them in paperback. I'll get it on oh. my phone. Yeah, I, I don't own it either, but I've got Amazon Prime, so we can make this happen. All right. Yeah, Ex Machina, I'm into it. All right. All right. So until next time, this is Comic Remix. I'm Alex Wanchura, at Alex Wanchura on Twitter. I'm Ben, at HBI2K Creighton. All right, see you guys later. Thanks,